Today we are wrapping up our series, The Good Place, and uh, I'll tell you up front, I've got a lot of notes to get through, and so I'm going to talk fast, because I know y'all are going to get hungry at about 11.30, and so I'm going to talk fast if you're taking notes, and I hope that you do. Uh, Most of what I need to convey to you will be on the screen, and so take a picture of it, but it won't be up there long, because there's a lot of uh, slides today. And so today we're wrapping up our series, The Good Place, and in week one of this series, we talked about three distinct realities of heaven. There were three conversations that Jesus had where he talked about the realities of heaven, and we said that they were this, that that heaven is now in another place. You know, that's what happens when you die. That's the the present heaven that that people experience now. Then we said it's here at another time. That's uh, the, uh, the future eternal heaven. And then we said in heaven can also be here and now, in another way, as, as we live out the values between heaven and earth. And, and we said that Jesus, when he was talking about this, he's talking about, in, in the context of age, he's talking about uh, time, he's talking about this age and the age to come. That, those are kind of the two distinct, two distinct eras that, that Jesus talks about and how they view time, this age and the age to come. And the first and the third, now in another place and here and, here and now in another way, they're about this age. They're, they're talking about this age, but the second one here at another time, that's about the age to come. That's about the, the future heavens where, where the heavens and the earth become one. And so the, the question for us today is this, is simply, what do we know about the age to come? What do we know about, about that age? Uh, what, what do we know about it? What, what do we know about where we're going to spend eternity? What can we expect? Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, he was writing to a group of believers who had lost sight of heaven. In fact, uh, he, w- he would write to them to remind them about setting their sights on heaven. In fact, he would do this uh, to the Colossians. Remember, we talked about that the last two weeks. He wrote to the Colossians, set your sights where? On heaven. Set your sights on heaven. And so Paul, as he's writing to these believers who have lost sight of heaven, uh, because they, they, they were living in a time where they, most of them were still first generation believers. They were living in that first century where they saw Jesus, they saw him be crucified, they saw him rise from the dead. They heard him say, I am going to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back. And now, a few years later, all their friends and their family members, they're dying. And they're going through all of this turmoil and and they're saying, hey Jesus, remember you said you were going to come back. Yeah, when's that going to happen? When are you coming back? And so Paul is writing to them to, to just try and establish, to, to get them to understand uh, and, and address their concerns. And so he says this, he says, specifically talking about their friends and loved ones who have died, he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. As Christians, when, when a, we, we have a person that died, if, if someone's a follower of Jesus, we don't have to grieve as somebody who's hopeless, who, who has no hope. In fact, I, I've often said this at funerals. I don't know how non-Christians make it through death experiences. I, I just don't. I don't know how they make it through that because there, if you're not a believer, you don't have a hope of a, of a future eternity in heaven. Like most people that aren't believers, they just think that this is it. Like you die, we put you in the ground, and that's it. Like there's nothing left. There's nothing to look forward to, and that seems pretty hopeless. 
That if this is all there is to life, that seems pretty hopeless. And so I really, I will tell you, if you're, if you're here today and you're kind of on the fence about being a believer or not a believer, I'll tell you, one of the greatest reasons you should be a believer is simply for the, this fact that you have a hope of something after this life. That this life is not all that there is. There is something better awaiting us. And so Paul says, you don't have to grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns... God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Now this is important. This is, this is part of a core belief of Christianity. And so I just want to kind of pause for a second and hit this. Because there's, there's, there's several core beliefs, but there's two that I want to mention real quickly. And the first core belief of Christianity is this, is that there was a bodily resurrection of Jesus. If there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus, then we can just forget about Christianity. Christianity is really a waste of time if there's no actual physical resurrection. Because the, the scriptures teach us that there was a bodily resurrection, and it's the resurrection of Jesus that is our hope. It is, it's the hope of our faith. It's the source of our faith. It was the resurrection of Jesus, that, that event, that really triggered and ultimately brought all of these, these teachings and scriptures together so that we could understand what it was like to be a follower of Jesus. If there's no resurrection of Jesus, then we've wasted our time. But another core belief is the bodily resurrection of all believers. And this is what Paul is talking about. This, this is what he's talking about. Not everybody gets that these two things correlate. Because Jesus raised himself from the dead, he proved that not only can he conquer our sin on our behalf, but death. That he could conquer death, our death on our behalf, and that there will be a bodily resurrection for us. In fact, in another letter, Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth, he's trying to establish this and remind people of the hope and uh, of this hope and what their beliefs are. He says, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die. We bury them, right? Because that's what you do with dead people, you bury them. He says, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. And I don't know about you, but that's really good news for me. Most of us, we can think back to a time when our bodies, um, when, when they maybe looked a little better than they do now, and they felt a little better than they do now, and they certainly worked a lot better than they do now. And, and if you can't, then let me just tell you, you will. And, and I thought I would never, that would never come for me. I didn't think I would ever be the guy that would say that. But, but as I'm now kind of entering toward the, the second half of life, I can tell you that that's a reality in my world. My knees hurt all the time. Um, I know when it's going to rain about three days before it's going to rain because my knees tell me that. And I always thought that was an old, old wives' tale, but, but my knees hurt. They hurt all the time. And so I'm looking forward to that new body where my knees don't hurt. And what Paul is getting at is, unlike in the modern world today, the, the hope of our physical resurrection, that was a powerful thing in the first century, a, a powerful thing among, amid first century followers. It, it, it's not so much today. We don't really think about a physical resurrection for us. That's not what we really look forward to. It's not really the hope that we have. But in the first century, this was, this was kind of the cornerstone of their hope. In fact, interestingly enough, it was a hope over and above what happens to you when you die. They had actually more of a hope of the future eternal heaven than they did in the present heaven of being with God after they die. We think about when we die, we go to heaven and we're with God. We're thinking about the present heaven. But they thought above and beyond that. They thought about the future eternal heaven. That's where the, what they were really looking forward to. This, you know, Where you go when you die, that's going to be great, right? 
that's, that's going to be fine, but, but we're looking forward to what's even better, the future eternal heaven. John Piper makes this observation. He says, It seems to me that the hope of resurrection does not have the same place of power and certainty for us today that it had for early Christians. He says, I think one of the reasons for that is that we've come to a wrong view of the age to come. He goes on to say, he says, yes, to die is gain. And yes, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But this is not our ultimate hope. This is not our final state of joy. This is not our final main comfort for when we have lost loved ones who believe. And that's not to minimize anything that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. The, the excitement for the present heaven and, and the release from pain and brokenness and, and, and suffering that will deliver us in, into this life and, and the satisfaction of being in the presence of God. But it's not our ultimate hope. Leaving this present earth, don't, hear me, don't, don't get me wrong, leaving this present earth for the present heaven is better. It is better than, than this. But our ultimate hope, the ultimate hope of the believer is that there's a future eternal heaven that's even better than that. And that's what Paul's trying to establish with them. That's what he's trying to get across. And so today, I, I, I want to do something that's sort of ambitious. In our remaining time, I want us to look at, at two chapters in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. And, and so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to them. And most people, if, if, for most people, the book of Revelation is kind of confusing. There's a, there's a lot of things and there's a lot of imagery there's some things that are supposed to be taken literal there's some things that are, are metaphorical and we often get those confused we're like is there really going to be a dragon with six heads and like we 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 have those kind of conversations and so it's confusing and and if you grew up in the church you probably grew up in one of two types of churches you grew up in the church that avoided the book of revelation like nobody ever talked about it and and it was almost like it didn't even exist in the bible and and you avoided it at all cost because it was confusing, and, and because you avoided it, you were scared about it because of what was in it. Or you grew up in the other type of church, which was that they only focused on the book of Revelation. Like that was what every sermon every Sunday was about. And because of that, you were nervous and scared because of what you heard that was in the book of Revelation. And so I want to try to pull apart some of the metaphorical and some of the literal, because Revelation 21 and 22, I think, gives us the, the most concise and best description of in one place of the future eternal heaven. And it's really incredible because it consolidates and pulls together much of what we read in other places in Scripture. In fact, there's about 18 different characteristics just in these two chapters alone that are directly correlated to things that the prophet Isaiah wrote about eight or 900 years before this, before John wrote these things. And that's significant because Isaiah, not only did he predict things about the future eternal heaven, but he predicted a bunch of things about the Messiah. Over 20 different specific predictions Isaiah made that were fulfilled by the Messiah. So Isaiah's track record on these predictions, they're pretty good. And so John's in good company aligning himself with Isaiah. And so John starts the, this chapter, Revelation 21, he starts with this picture that God gives him. John, uh, God gives John a vision or a picture. And we don't know again if he was asleep or if he was awake, if he's in some sort of trance. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. But, but John is given a vision or a picture of heaven and this is what he saw. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, we've only talked about this age and the, and the age to come. And he's talking about the age to come when he's talking about this. He's talking about uh, the, this present age, this present earth, and this present heaven. They've all passed away, and there's a new earth. 
And what's interesting about this is that he doesn't say there's a new earth in a different place. He says that there's a new earth. And this new earth, it had characteristics of this earth. And it wasn't just that it was a new earth, it was a, it was a new earth that had a new heaven attached to it or connected to it. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like, but, there, but there's a coming together of heaven and, and earth. There's this new heaven and this new earth, and, and, this, and this age, the, this age that we're living in now, it suddenly changes into the age to come. And, and John would say, and the age to come is no longer the present heaven and the present earth, but it's the new heaven and the new earth. Now, he's about to reference something that we haven't talked about in this series. We've talked about in this age and the age to come, right? We've talked about those things. But he's going to actually reference a third era. I, I told you the Hebrew understanding of, of time was this age and the age to come. But John, he, he not only refers to those two, but he refers to a, a prior age. He refers to a prior age, and he's going to compare and contrast these three different ages in, in this chapters of 21 and 22. And, and look, I, I would love to read all the verses, but we simply don't have time for that. So you can go back and read these chapters uh, later today. But I do want to go through some of the highlights. So if you've if you got your Bibles open, jump down to verse 10 of, of chapter 21. John says this, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain, great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of, out of heaven from God. Now remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago that heaven is, is this future place. Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and, and, and if I prepare a place for you, I'll, I'll come back and get you, right? And this place is being prepared for us, and John has a vision, and God is saying, hey, why don't you come here, come with me, I want to show you this place that's being prepared for you. You're going to get a glimpse of what awaits you. And so John sees this, and he tries to find the words to describe it, and so he uses... He describes it as a city. He uses very earthly terms to describe that city that's coming down from, from the present heaven. This place that's being prepared for, for you and for me. And, and the description of the city in the following verses, he talks about a foundation and, and walls and gates and streets and, and, and all of the things that, that were very first century-like in their cities. Uh, they were kind of, it's kind of the Hebrew version of what their cities looked like. And and it would be something that everybody could relate to, because remember, you're reading the, we're reading this from a 21st century perspective, but the original readers, they're reading this from a 1st century perspective. And so they're reading it in the context of what their cities look like. And so, and so John is using terms that they would be familiar with. And he's basically saying, look, this is a place that we're familiar with, but it's better than the places that are here. There's a holy city, there's a great city, it's a perfect city, but it's like a city. It's very much like our cities, and it's descending down, it's coming down from heaven. And John refers to a couple of things, and he isn't saying, look, there was a new heaven and new earth that I saw that was a new creation. He's no, 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 it was recreated. There's a recreation of this earth. This new earth that we're going to have, John, John says, it's descending out of heaven. It's a recreation of this earth. It, it was a completely different thing than, than you know, it, it wasn't, a, excuse me, it wasn't a completely different thing. It's a recreation of this earth. And so, so in the age to come, God's focus is on recreation. He's recreating things. But, but in the prior age... Prior to the fall of man, prior, this is prior to when sin entered the world. You remember God created the world and there was this period. And we don't know much about it. We don't know how long it lasted, but there was a time where everything was perfect, right? God, God created everything and he looked at it and he said, he said it was good. And he had it just the way that he wanted it. 
And then sin entered into the world and death entered into the world and, and sin began to corrupt and affect all sorts of things. In fact, it, it affected everything, didn't it? And so in the prior age, God had creation the way that He wanted it. And in, and in this age, His focus was on creating. In the prior age, it's on, cre- on creation. But in this age, the, the age after the, the creation, His focus is no longer on creating. God is not focused on creating right now. You know what God's focus is? It's on redemption. God's focus is on redemption. It's about redeeming people and redeeming the world. And then recreating this world. And he's doing that simultaneously. He is, he's redeeming people and redeeming this world, right? We're, we're all here because we're redeemed people. Somebody has told us about Jesus. We've become redeemed people. But at the same time, God is preparing a place for us, right? So he's simultaneously uh, working on this. And I, I promise I'm going to try and pull all of this stuff together for us. But, but John would go on to say a, a little bit later. He would say, in this city... The city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And the Lamb is a reference to Jesus, right? And who, who we find out in the Scriptures that He was and He is the one to come. He's the eternal King of kings. He's, he's the Lord of lords. He spans all of these ages. He spans the prior age and this age and the age to come. He spans all of those things. And the world becomes illuminated in, in the age to come. And this recreation of the world, there, there is no need for a sun or a moon because Jesus, His presence, the Lamb, the Lamb of God, it's the light for the whole world. John, in another one of his writings, refers to Jesus as the Word. He said, he said the Word was with us in the beginning, and when the Word was with us in the beginning, He gave light to the world. He, he gave light and He sent it into the world. And then in this age, He became light. He says the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He, he became the light of the world and, and He became the light of life for people. He led us to life. And then John tells us in, in this vision of heaven that He will be the eternal light in the world. In the prior age, He, he gave us part of His light. He gave us uh, this illuminated, peaceful world. And in this age, He became light. He became light in the world, to light the way in the midst of darkness. And in the future heaven, He will be the eternal light. He will give light and life to all direction, uh, for, and all direction to all things. And then John goes on, and he gets kind of metaphorical here. He says, uh, then the angel showed me a river with, with the water of life, clear as crystal. All right? It says, it's clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and, and from the Lamb. And it flowed down the center of Main Street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there, be, will there be a curse upon anything. And so John references the prior age and, and when, when he references this, what, these, what are these images of that he talks about? You know, uh, a, a river and trees and, and, and trees and leaves and all those kind of things. What are those images of? They're, they're images of Eden, right? They're all images of Eden, and basically what he's saying was in the beginning, God had things the way that he wanted them, and he blessed it. He blessed it in the very beginning, and he called it what? I just said it a minute ago. What did he call it? Good, right? Yeah, come on, y'all are paying attention with me, right? He called it good. God created everything in the beginning, and he gave it light, and when things were illuminated, he looked around and he said, it's good. Everything here is good. And then we're told that the curse came, and the world became cursed by sin, But in the age to come, we're told that the curse will be broken. 
in this life, living in this age, in, in the present earth, our lives are still cursed by sin. We still feel the effects of sin. It's why our bodies hurt. It's why my knees hurt. It's why, why some of your hands hurt and why your head's hurt and, and all of those things. It's, it's, it's the effects of sin. But in the age to come, the curse will be broken. The, the new heaven and the new earth, this curse is going to be broken. And I don't know about you, but what, there's something that I find interesting in all of these ages. They all have something in common. All of these ages have, have trees, right? They all have two trees, in fact. There's two trees in every age that represent something significant. If you remember in the garden story, there, there's two trees in the prior age. There, there were two trees in the garden, and one was the tree, the tree of life, and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, the, and there was a choice between trees. And that single choice led from life as good and perfect to the introduction of death and destruction. A single life choice, a single choice led to death and destruction and brokenness in our world. And then in this age, when, when God was focused on redemption... And Jesus came to become the light. The curse of sin was broken. And it was broken by a single man as he chose death. Seems ironic, doesn't it? That the curse of death was broken by death. He chose death. He looked at the tree of knowledge of good and evil that brought death into the world. And he chose to hang himself on another tree. To be hanged on another tree. And he chose to give you and me life by choosing death. And this is what I love about the picture of the age to come, when, when the curse is broken. John refers to, to two trees in the eternal heaven. He says there are two trees on, on either side of, of the river, right? And they're both trees of life. They're both trees of life because heaven is characterized by eternal, everlasting, thriving fullness of life for everyone. It, it flows from the throne of God a, a, into our lives. It's the recreation of earth where we, where we experience all that we were designed to experience. The, the shadow of everything that we've ever experienced here, every longing that we've ever had, every desire that we've ever, ever had, it becomes satisfied in the future eternal heaven from the, from the life that's flowing from the throne of God. And the life that these two trees, which is a metaphor that they're giving to the world, it's, it's, it's if to say there are two options. There are two options in, in, the, eternal, in the eternal heaven, in the future heaven. There's, there's everlasting life, and then there's everlasting life. Which is really one option, right? And here's what's so, so impressive to me about this. Is that we, we long for that, right? I hope that we do. I hope that we long for that. We long for that future eternal heaven. But it's not just, it's not just us. It's not just people that long for that. It's not just humanity. It's, it's not just us that are going to be restored. It's, it's, it's the world. The world is going to be restored. In Romans 8, Paul says all creation, not, not just humanity, all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who His children really are. When Jesus comes back for us, when, when He raises those from the dead who have died in, in Him, He lifts all those up who have placed faith in Him. When He comes, He says, against His will, speaking of creation, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, catch this, with eager hope the creation looks forward if we could just catch that if we could somehow catch what creation looks forward to and is longing for and we could bottle that up for ourselves and and maybe distribute that amongst ourselves i think we would be better off because creation is looking forward to the restoration and the recreation of all things paul would say the the creation looks forward to the day when it will join god's children in glorious freedom 
from death and decay, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul would go on to say, he says, we who are believers, we also groan, right? When we get up out of bed in the morning, we, oh, we groan, right? We groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait for the eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights, the, the inheritance, everything that he has promised us, when he gives us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised us. Man, I look forward to that. I hope that we all do. But here's a, I, but I'll go back to what we said the very first week of the series. Is I don't think it's that, it's, it's, it, our problem is not that we don't think about heaven enough. It's that we don't think enough about heaven. We don't, we don't grasp the glory that it's gonna, that's going to be there. We don't grasp all the good things that we have to look forward to. And so we just, we just kind of settle. And all creation is groaning. All creation looks forward to the day when, when it's restored, when it's recreated. And I'm telling you, if, if we could just get that image, if we could just capture that in our hearts somehow, that we look forward to the day when we're restored, when we're recreated, so to speak, when, when, there is, when all things are made new. Man, it changes perspective. It changes the way that we live on, on life. And this is so important. The summary, the summary of all this is, is what's promised is, is this. What's promised is a new earth. All right? What is promised is a new earth. What is not promised is a non-earth. See, this is, I think, where we get ourselves in, into trouble. We have this picture of, of our picture of heaven, which we talked about the very first week of, of clouds and gates and streets of gold. And, and John's trying to say, no, no, I don't think you understand. It, it's not a non-earth. It's a new earth. It, it's everything that you can think of that's good in this world being redeemed and recreated. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge said it this way, he said, Heaven, as the eternal home of the divine man and all of the redeemed members of the human race, must necessarily be thoroughly human in its structure, condition, and activities. He would say, there must be the exercise of all faculties, the gratification of all tastes, the development of all talent capacities, the realization of all ideals. He would say, the reason, the intellectual curiosity, the imagination, the aesthetic instincts, the holy affections, the social affinities, the inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul, basically everything that you've ever felt or thought, he says, they must all find in heaven exercise and satisfaction. We're not just going to be a bunch of zombies in heaven that sing kumbaya around a campfire. But I think that's the image that a whole lot of us have about heaven. It's why we don't look forward to it. But, but John is, is trying to get across to us that heaven, there's going to be real things to do. There's going to be real, real activities to participate in. It's going to be the, the best things that we've ever imagined. And they're going to be greater than all of that. This is what makes heaven heaven. Every thrilling ride, every meaningful encounter, every pleasurable experience... Every moment of deep satisfaction that you've ever had, it's a shadow. I'm telling you, it's just a shadow of the eternal heaven. Anything that you've experienced on this earth that was, was gratifying to you, you'll experience to a greater degree, a perfect degree. I have, uh, when we, we go on vacation, my, it's my favorite week of the year. And uh, I, I, we're beach people. We, we love to go to the beach um, and I love to look out, if, if I can get high enough uh, in, on like a balcony or something, to look out over the horizon where, where it looks finally like the water and the sky just meet. 
Like you, you just look far enough out there that, that you, can't, you can't tell where the water ends and the sky begins. That, and and I always, every time we go to the beach, I, I, I'll take a picture, I'll look of it, and, and I'll tell Christus, this is my favorite view. This is, for me, a little glimpse of heaven. And Christy will always tell me, said vacation is her favorite week of the year because it's the, like the one week of the year that I'm not attached to my phone all the time and I just kind of de- de- uh, disconnect and, and just kind of present with her. And, and, and it's just a little glimpse of heaven. But here's the danger. The danger is that the same experiences that give us a glimpse into the eternal heaven have the potential to create in us an attachment to the present earth. The things that we look forward to, right? The, the things that we experience here on this earth, the things that we think, gosh, man, this feels like heaven. This is a little, little slice of heaven. This is a little taste of heaven. It actually has the potential for us to create and sow ourselves into the present earth. It, it makes the fear of, of leaving this earth and, and this world consume our attention. It, it keeps us from, from looking forward and living toward life. Toward this life and other experiences in this life. In other words, it keeps us from looking forward to eternal heaven. It's not to say that the things that we experience on this earth are bad. We just have to understand what they're pointing us to. That they're pointing us towards something even greater. Even more perfect. And so we can't be attached to those experiences here on this earth. Because when we attach ourselves to those experiences, we quit looking forward toward heaven. And, And when we quit looking forward toward heaven we quit living toward heaven don't miss this here's what's at stake john writes this down jesus says this he says look i'm coming soon and i don't know what soon is for you but the scriptures say that a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years so it's only been a little over a couple of days since heaven said this you know in that economy but he says look i'm coming soon bringing my reward bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds This is Jesus saying that how you live your life on earth will will impact how you experience your rewards in heaven. And Jesus taught this over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, there was one time where where Peter was so disturbed by the way that Jesus taught this that that he has a conversation with Jesus about it. He He was worried about Peter being, he was worried about there being such a high bar to get into heaven. And Jesus is having a conversation with the rich young ruler. And basically... The rich young ruler is telling him, everything I've done, I've done all of these great things, so, so what awaits me in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, nothing, basically, right? I mean, Jesus didn't tell him, he said, you, you do this and then, then come back and follow me. And, and, and he knew that the rich young ruler wasn't going to do that. So basically what it says is, nothing awaits you, because you're not willing to, to sacrifice, right? And Peter doesn't really understand this, exp- this interaction all the way. So, so Matthew records for us, Peter Peter talks to Jesus after us, he, he answered, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, this guy is good. He's better than me. Like he's done, he's kept all the commandments. I haven't even come close to keeping the commandments. He's good. He's really good. And we've left everything for you. And if he can't get in, then what's left for us? Look what Jesus said to him. He said, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, that's the, that's the age to come. When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's talking about His disciples. But then He says this, He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife and children or fields for My sake, basically anybody who's ever sacrificed anything in this life, 
He says, for my sake we'll receive a hundred times as much and we'll inherit eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know any other investment that you can be guaranteed a hundred X or a hundred times of your investment. And again, this is not about how you get into heaven. This is how you're going to experience heaven. What if you were guaranteed a hundred times your investment? I mean, wouldn't that be extraordinary? We're not talking about 100% because that's only two times. We're talking about 100 times. Some of you are trying to do the math real quick. It's 10,000%. It's 10,000% of your investment. So what if you knew you were guaranteed 100x? How much would you want to invest in this life if you were guaranteed 100 times in the one to come? That's the promise of Jesus. That's the guarantee of Jesus that whatever you invest in this life for his sake, you will be returned on in the next See, here's the deal. We, we set our sights way too short in this life. We, we set our sights on, on, on just the next thing. We're always looking forward to the next thing, right? It's the next thing, and what are we going to do next? And we, go, we just go from one activity to the next, and one event to the next. And, and in, in the first half of this life, it's, it's like we set our things on like going to school and, and getting good grades and, and, and getting into college, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. We set our sights on a career, and we set our sights on on, on, having, on getting married and having a family. And that's the first half of life, right? And then in the second half of life, we, we set our sights on not having children because we want them gone, right? And we set our sights on not having a career because we, we want to retire and, and we, we don't want to be tied down. The first half of life is, is building a life and the second half of life is focused on enjoying the time that we have left. But, it, but here's the reality of what Scripture just teaches over and over We, we talk about life in terms of, of just we kind of live and we kind of die, right? We, just, we talk about life as if, as if it's just here. But, but here's the thing. We live toward little things, right? So, so we'll just put a dash here. This is the life that we, and if, let me push this back so you all can see it a little better. This is the life that we experience here in this age. This is this age. My handwriting's not very good, so. But this that goes on forever, this is the age to come. This is life in the age to come. And here's what we do. We, we spend all of our time looking forward to just little things here and little things here and little things here and, and, and here and here. And, and here's what we do. We, build, we spend all of our life working on these things so that we can enjoy this little bit of, of life right here. That little bit of life. We, we spend all of our life focused on, on this one little section. Somewhere in life we'll say, you know, typically around my age, mid-30s, 40s, 50s, we say, I really want to enjoy the end of my life. And so we leverage our, our best working years and our best resources to try and set ourselves up for this little bit right here. We spend all of our life, even just this amount, to work toward this amount. We spend all of our time trying to squeeze in as much life or squeeze out as much life as we can out of this life. I mean, after all, you've heard it said, maybe even said it yourself, YOLO, right? You only live once. And it seems like a fun and carefree uh, way to live, but I'm going to tell you, it's really careless. 
The Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle John would say, no, you don't understand. There's so much more ahead of you. It, it's the fulfillment and it's the fullness of, of expression of all the good that you've ever experienced. This is the fullness and the goodness of everything that we've ever experienced. And, and it's not here yet. It's in the age to come. We live for this, but we really should be living for this. I have a friend who, who started using a new phrase. He said, anytime you hear somebody talk about something that seems short-sighted, because living for this is short-sighted. Let me be clear about that. He says, anytime you hear someone talk about doing something that's short-sighted in this life or, or making a decision that you know that as they get older, you're, gonna, you're thinking, you're going to regret that. Um, every time you hear somebody making a decision and they're tempted to think, you know, he's going to say, yeah, you, you know, you should do that. You only live once. He says, yeah, after all, you only live forever. Yeah, you should go ahead and do that. You only live forever. Make sure you squeeze out of this life. Make sure you don't miss out on, on, every, on that opportunity because you only live forever. Just imagine if we could get this, how, how this could change not only our experience in this life, but in the age to come. There's a whole bunch of people who, who, who interact with us on a daily and weekly basis and they're wondering where our hope comes from. And what you think about heaven impacts how you live life on this earth what you think about heaven impacts how you live life on this earth and as we said what what you live toward you look forward to so what you think about heaven impacts how you live life on earth and how you live life on earth will impact how you experience heaven how you live in this section of life will impact how you experience this life remember you only live forever so where do you place your hope? Is it in this life where you're just squeezing as much life out of, out of it as you can? Or is it in eternal life? Where the only options are life and life for all of eternity. May we be people whose lives speak of the age to come. Who speak of the hope of heaven. Who speak of the one who sits at the center of it all. Who made it possible. Who who promises to raise us from the dead. And experience all that we were designed to experience when he created us in the beginning. May we be those people. Because remember, you only live forever. Let me pray for us.